You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Strange Culture is a surreal nightmare documentary that begins when internationally acclaimed artist and professor Steve Kurtz's wife dies in her sleep of heart failure. The police arrive, become suspicious of Kurtz's art, and call the FBI. Within hours, the artist is detained as a suspected bioterrorist. With us today is Lynn Hirschman Leeson, the director of Strange Culture, which screened this weekend at LA's AFI Fest and will be at the Lemley Grand this Friday. Hirschman Leeson has worked extensively in photography, video, film, installation, and pioneered interactive computer and net-based media art. She recently received the National Endowment for the Arts grant for a forthcoming documentary on the history of feminist art. Lynn Hirschman Leeson, welcome to Film School. Hi, thanks for inviting me. How are you today? Good. Now, you're up in the Bay Area, am I right? That's right. Yes. How is it that you first came across the story of Steve Kurtz? People in the art world heard about it. It's a small community. People were alarmed that it was happening. Everybody thought that the the case was going to um, go away, that when they found out what the truth of the matter was, that they would drop charges, and it was just a mistake. And when they didn't drop the charges or change the charges to a 20-year potential sentence, we were all alarmed, and I wanted to do something and, and felt this was the most important thing I could do is to inform people of this particular uh, Situation. What was your connection uh, between the uh, Kurtz? Just it was the art community itself, or were you introduced through the newspaper, or was it Keith no, Olbermann? Uh, actually, I was a professor, and I was driving to my class with, in a carpool, and people started to talk about it. Oh, really? So it oh. was before it got into the newspapers. It was I, I found out about it maybe a day or two after it happened. So the police had already arrived, or the FBI had arrived. Yeah. The agents were in hazmat suits, were sorting through all the stuff. The little sidebar to the story, too, is they even, they even took his cat away. Yeah. Well, they, they locked, locked the cat him. up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the attic. What precipitated the arrival of the authorities was the tragic death of uh, Steve's wife, Hope. She died in her sleep, and this is what set sort of this chain reaction of events in, in, in motion. They arrived, found Petri dishes and other material, used it in laboratories all over the country, yeah. completely and totally legal, and yeah. and they uh, then began to ask him some questions, and he uh, found himself on the wrong end of an indictment for bioterrorism. It was suspected bioterrorism. Suspected yeah. bioterrorism. Did you uh, speak very much with Steve? Because I know he can't really talk too much about the case at all. Uh, uh-huh. Did did you uh, get a good friendship going with Mr. Kurtz? I had known his work. We were in uh, some of the same exhibitions. Uh-huh. So I had never met him personally, but he knew my work and I knew his work. Uh-huh. So I wrote to him, I emailed him, and he uh, allowed me to do this story. So in the interim, you know, there has been a lot of communication. And I think a friendship that's developed from the whole process of, of working with him in order to inform people what was happening. Stephen Kurtz had a uh, particular sort of objective with much of his art. A lot of his work was uh, was made in order to inform things, people about things that they were experiencing that they may not have known about. 
in order to do that, he often uh, set up labs or performances with, with lab settings in order to just tell people what they weren't being told. And in this particular case, he was exhibiting something about genetically uh, modified foods. I mean, he was setting up a lab where people could test food in their refrigerator to see what the GMO content was. So therefore, he had this, uh, this equipment. So it's sort of an interactive art exhibit. People could bring their own food down and have it tested. And I'm sure people were shocked to find out how much of their food was genetically modified. It's part art. It's part education. It's in it. I guess you could say political. Is it? Is, would that be fair to to characterize it as political? His exhibit. His exhibit. Yeah. I mean, he views his work as part theater and for performance, and he does view it as political. In your estimation, did that factor into what was going on in terms of his indictment to the government's perception of him? I don't have any evidence, but, you know, uh, Peter Coyote uh, did a lot of research, and that was his understanding that because of the kind of work they were doing, you know, where in the United States it's illegal to label if food is genetically modified, whereas every place else you have to. It's illegal not to mention it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was uh, creating kind of a, a bit of embarrassment and, and saying things that I think that some people didn't want the public to know, perhaps, you know, that, that he was being scrutinized uh, more closely yeah. than just a painter, say. So Stephen Kurtz was exposing this nexus of collusion between government and the agricultural industry to hide the fact that much of our food is now genetically modified. Right, and his stance and Robert Farrell's stance was that people should know and then they could make their own decisions about what to eat. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Robert Farrell, too. What was his relationship? How did he uh, get together with Steve Kurtz? Uh, Steve had been at Carnegie Mellon prior to coming to the University of Buffalo. He formed a friendship with Robert Farrell, who was at the University of Pittsburgh, and, and he collaborated with him on a number of projects. These artists were very careful about what they did, and they, they weren't scientists, but they worked with scientists in order to make sure what they were doing was truthful and uh, educating a broad public in a way that was, um, that was accurate. So they had an 18-year history of collaborating together on pieces similar to this. I just want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Lynn Hirschman Leeson, and the film is <laughs> called Strange Culture. Now, this is part uh, docudrama and documentary. Yeah. Was there a point in time when you yeah. were making this where you, you thought to yourself, this is the way I want to go with this, or yeah. did you set out to make a, a, a documentary, a pure documentary? No, because Steve couldn't talk about the case. Yeah. I mean, because the trial has to happen. So the challenge was, how do you tell a story when the protagonist can't say what happened? And in order to do that, I uh, I framed it with reenactments by actors. Right. And originally, Steve wasn't going to be in it. Then I was able to get one interview with him. And originally, he didn't want his wife portrayed at all. And then he said, well, if anyone did portray it, her, it should be Tilda Swinton. One thing happened, you know, and... and Varying things added to each other in order to make the film that was. Yeah, you set up the uh, the acting, uh, the actors in this, with disclaimers about just what you you just said, which is we can't really talk about, or Steve can't talk about the circumstances that led up to uh, his arrest. But you you did a great job with just giving us a context for what had happened. And I gather uh, Hope Kurtz, who, who, as I said, tragically died and was sort of the catalyst for this, was uh, was a big fan of uh, Tilda. And That's right. She's a terrific actress. So it's uh, always she good to see she her. was in another film that you've done. Is that right? 
She was in two others. This oh. is our third together, and I hope, I hope we do many more. She was in Technolust and Conceiving Ada. How did that relationship start with uh, Tilda Swinton? Well, I had written Conceiving Ada, and it seemed to me that Tilda was the only one that could play it. Uh. And one thing led to another where, um, where I was able to get in touch with her, and she did do it. And we only had five days, but we shot the feature in five days because wow. I figured a feature in five days with her was worth months with anyone else and so we became friends in that process and as steve kurtz uh, says during the film it, she was such a, the the center of so much of what he did and in fact at one point sort of an off-camera conversation from tilda about this relationship to the art that that uh, that hope had and it's the way that they interacted between what she did and what steven did was uh, really an important part of their life together i got the feeling she contacted much of what the critical art ensemble was doing. Yeah, but, she can, she was able to translate it, you know, uh-huh. contextualize it and get the information out. She was their editor. Today, it's, uh, is it still stands that Steve Kurtz and Robert Farrell are awaiting a trial date? Steve Kurtz is awaiting a trial date. He expects it to happen within six months, and the film is playing with many uh, screenings dedicated to help him to raise money for his defense. Mm-hmm. Robert Farrell, about two weeks ago, on the weekend that we opened the film in New York, decided to take a plea bargain. Oh. Uh, and uh, after two years, uh, he had had two strokes yeah. and a heart attack from oh. a lot of the questioning. Their finances were depleted. Uh, you know, it's costing each of them, you know, close to half a million dollars each to defend themselves. And he took a misdemeanor charge oh at, at that point. So let, let's, again, put this in perspective. After, what, how many years of this? Three years? Three years. Three years now of this prosecution for Robert Farrell was charged with essentially selling this, uh, some of the equipment. What happened was that uh, Steve called Robert Farrell and they asked him to send uh a substance, Seradia Marsasins, which is completely harmless, and which in the interview I did with Robert Farrell, he said he's done maybe a thousand times to people who've wanted it, who've who've requested it for educational purpose, but they didn't fill out the forms because they had been working together. So if you don't fill out the forms, essentially it's it's wire fraud if you're doing it over the phone or or the Internet. And the reason that this is a precedent uh, setting case is because this used to be a civil charge, mm-hmm. and with this case, it's being changed to a criminal charge. Mm-hmm. Right. It has massive Im- implications for all of us that you know may, may make a mistake on a form that we fill out. Right. I, I want I want to make sure our, our listeners are understanding that this this is a a very important case. It's for for a couple of reasons. One of which you just uh, uh, stated, which is turning civil disputes, civil contract disputes, into criminal offenses which expands the uh, ability of, of government and, and district attorneys to really invade, criminalize so much more behavior than was ever the case. It doubles it. Oh, as, as, as one of the characters says, it doubles it. And secondly, as one of the, uh, the, the people that you spoke with, an academician, said, this also is an entree into the world of academia on the part of the federal government and the federal prosecutors and DAs across the country. It gives them... A, a precedent-setting case to go after people within the university, which is, if you're a student of history, one of the pressure points. If you have a government that is in, interested in oppressing people, academia is one of the places in which they try to apply tremendous political and uh, criminal pressure. That's correct, yeah. 
Yeah. And that's why, you know, why it's so dangerous, you know, if you're going to try to silence artists and professors and intellectuals in a culture, um, you know, it has massive ramifications. Now, is the best place if somebody wants to go to, to help out with this, is that the CAE Defense org? Yes. On a positive note, you, your uh, film was at the AFI Fest over the yes. weekend. How did that go over? Did you, did you feel good about the reception there? Uh, the reception has been amazing everywhere in the world, uh, except for where I live in San Francisco. <laughs> but, but every place else, I mean, it's gotten five stars, um, you know, from Hollywood Reporter to the Variety to the New York Times. There's the New York Times Critics Piece of, of the Week, Time Magazine, yeah. your Spiegel. Everywhere in the world has had fantastic response to this, uh, and the AFI was no exception. Well, this is not only a great documentary, it's a very important documentary, because yeah. just as Mike was saying, we're talking about turning civil law into criminal law as a result of this. It's a great vehicle to, to bring that fact to people right now. Right. I don't want to sound hyperbolic about this, but yes, you th- th- I am going to a little bit, and um, I'd, I want to hear what you have to say, Lynn, on this, is that the, this sort of uh, uh, criminalizing academic behavior, academic practices... Is it, is really a page out of out of what we know of of uh, a fascist Germany? I mean, we know it happens in totalitarian uh, regimes all over the world, and maybe it's wrong to just single that one out. But but uh, but they they're the it's ones so that prejudicial yeah, when it comes to fascist regimes. Fascist, they're at the top yeah. of my list. And am, is that am I framing that correctly? Is this am I am I being too excitable about this? Well, this is what the London Guardian said. It was page out of Hitler's handbook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what they call this case. You know, the, the the problem in this case is that people aren't doing much about it because one, they think it was dropped, yeah. or two, they don't want to do anything until there's real news. Like, uh, he, you know, there's the result of the of the, uh, of the jury trial. Right. But, um, you know, my my idea of making this now before the trial happened was to bring awareness and maybe affect the trial, yeah. affect the thinking prior to. Uh, to the result. Besides Olbermann, which you, you have clips of the Keith Olbermann program, has the national press, what's the press generally been like after the initial reporting of what happened? How have they been otherwise in terms of covering this case and the ramifications of it? There was a lot of press when it first happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, but then it, it dropped out because, uh, again, people either thought the case, the, the case was over or else they were waiting to see what happened with the trial. Now, there's no statute of liberty limitations on the trial, and so, so they could keep delaying it, you know, even for 20 years, that's happened. But uh, hopefully, you know, the it will, uh, his, his case will come together soon, sooner than he requested that the trial happen. Well, well that's, that's out of his control, right? He doesn't really control uh, when this thing will be eventually brought to a jury trial. It's a jury trial, I assume, right? Uh-huh. Now, what's the reaction uh, around? You, you mentioned the London and Der Spiegel. What's the reaction around the world been in terms of? Is this about? Does it change some perspectives about America, or are they shocked? More shocked yeah. than, than you? Yeah. Would? So when I when I showed it at Sundance, they said, "Yeah, well, well, they won't understand this when you show it in Berlin because it opened the Berlin Film Festival yeah. this year." And uh, in fact, the reaction was even stronger, yeah. and people were absolutely shocked and outraged that this could be happening, one, in America, and two, to an artist. The film is Strange Culture, and we're speaking with the director, Lynn Hirschman-Leeson. How'd you get the residents to do the score? <laughs> 
Well, the residents are friends of mine, oh, and they, they actually did the score for Conceiving Ada. I've worked with them on several films. Yeah. And when we did this, you know, I shot this with my little mini-DV, and I used a lot of the crew I used in Technolos. And I, I, there was no time to raise money, and I just asked people I knew to help. The residents had been following this case. I asked them on a Tuesday, and I think they were signing a, a contract on Friday for all their all their music. So this. Oh, they, they wrote the whole score in two days. Oh, Could you email me uh, the pictures of all of the all of the group members? Could you just send me a group photo so yeah, I can? Of course, you're teasing. I'm teasing people yeah. who don't know the residents are notorious or infamous or famous for never having. Am, am I correct to say they've never revealed their faces to the public? Well, in, in, a, in a performance context. <laughs> You know, not that we well in a performance context. <laughs> yeah. never, they never. They, they're the ones. If for anyone who wanted who is interested, they're the ones you've seen the with the eyeballs. Yeah, the guys with the, the eyeballs. The famous one. Famous the Yeah. There's a UCI contact here, uh, and professor. who appears in the film is an uh, artist professor here at UC Irvine, Beatrice Da Costa. Mike Boyle, at KCI, helped record that little segment. So, so we're proud to uh, to contribute our in some small way to have been a part of this. Yes. yes. Are you traveling with the film um, when it goes around the country? I've been I've been to twenty nine cities since January. Oh my oh, goodness! Gosh. Yeah, are, are you and, worn out? <laughs> uh, I, w- I I'm getting there. I'm going yeah. to St. Louis next week, and then to the, uh, Greece and the UK the week after, wow. and okay. then then that will probably be it, unless unless. We're called. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you been in touch with Steve Kurtz through all this? He yeah. To, he came to our screening at MoMA, in fact, and he was at the Sundance screening. Oh, great. Well, you can tell him, at least for me, he's, he's a, a extraordinary person and a brave person, and I, and I love the what, his sense of humor about all this, too. I understand it must have been horrible on uh, what he calls 5-11, yes, 5-11, yeah. when his wife died and he was arrested. Uh, just the interview that you did have with him just shows a, a, a great character. It, it really does in this film. He shows a remarkable sense of perspective. Getting into this as an artist, he, he, he had to realize that he was going to run up against some very powerful interests but to have this journey twist and turn the way it has, uh, it's it's remarkable. His perseverance and courage in all of this. Yeah, I think I think they're all heroic. You know, Steve mm-hmm. is all the people who have been battling to help him all this time, despite all the the difficulties and pressures. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about uh, Wallace Shawn's appearance at the art auction. Has he been involved in a, any other way, Wallace Shawn? Well, I think he is involved in the ACLU. He introduced the film at the Human Rights Festival. Okay. And, again, I didn't contact him, but the gal- the gallery contacted him. And, actually, people started to send me material, you know, that people had around the world. When when I started to make this, the, the cartoons had already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and people had shot footage here and there, and they had shot that auction. I just go back to what Robert Farrell said uh, at one point in the film, and to think that this is the result of what he said is to educate the public about what's going on in science today. What he had to go through and what Steve Kurtz had to go through is is nothing more he's than just trying through. to... Yeah, yeah, he's going through. It's just doing nothing more than trying to educate the public about what they're being exposed to in regard to science. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. There is a statement by Robert Farrell's wife and daughter about um, Robert Farrell's uh, taking the uh, the misdemeanor charge, also on the Critical Art Ensemble website, by the way. Well, this is a film that I, I want our, our listeners to look for, um, as if you're in the Los Angeles area. Lemley Grand is opening this Friday. 
how long before there's a chance we'll see this uh, show up on Netflix? It's going to be on the Sundance Channel starting December 11th for five days, okay. and then at uh, March 25th it's going to be released on DVD. But it definitely is a con- it should be considered uh, this year's Academy Award for a documentary film. And uh, well, you should tell tell them that. Well, okay. it's, it's fulfilled we'll the requirements. It we we yeah. do know a little bit about what it takes to be considered, and we will let them know in no yeah. uncertain terms. Uh, Lynn, well, we did qualify, by the way. Our our LA screening uh, is the last one, and we've screened it fifteen times. Fantastic, excellent. We'll leave our fingers crossed. Well, well, what a great yeah. statement for the Academy to make to come to um, to uh, award this. Put yeah. it in at least in the nominations. It's a wonderful film. Well, Lynn Hirschman, Leeson, thank you so much. The film is Strange Culture. Thank you for being here on Film School. Thank you so much. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at org slash filmschool.com.